these are my learning objectives. Is it on two screens? Yes. To review the, and I've changed these a bit from what's in your book because of Tina's session. And also, uh, Nancy Palmer had a set whole session here yesterday on how to start an IRB in a research, in a mission hospital setting. So I'm not going to talk at all about that. But uh, my learning objectives are to review the benefits of biomedical research in faith based healthcare settings. To un- Can you guys all hear me? To understand why collaborations are key to research to describe the role of various stakeholders in successful collaborations, and to consider the impact of research collaborations on missions and mission hospital staff, patients, and the community. So biomedical research, as you probably all know, involves studying something. It involves the scientific method. And generally, biomedical research will either be looking at uh, learning new knowledge about health and disease, or learning something about a particular health-related intervention, or perhaps just studying the healthcare system. I mean, there are many ways that, that research can play out. And successful biomedical research almost always involves collaboration. Now, as you look at these two pictures, which do you think, I found these on Google, a Google image search, right? So which do you think more truly communicates the uh, concept of collaboration to you, these two images. What do you think? So the group. Uh, So Joel likes the group there. Good. Other comments? You don't want me tug of war fighting against someone else. This is just collaborative. No tug of war. Okay. So you're voting for the one on the left also. Good. Ah, the one on the right, they're pulling together. And maybe the other end of the tug of war is some big, difficult health problem. And they're all like, yeah, so fair enough. They're the same. What do you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Good, good. Other comments? Just put a rope in the hand of the people. <laughs> put a rope. Yeah, so fair enough. And so, of course, it's, they're both collaboration, right? It's not like one is and one isn't. But a lot, you've mentioned a lot of good things. I mean, the picture on the left, you know, the exchange of ideas and concepts, and that's kind of what's happening at this conference this weekend, right? I mean, it's huge, that sort of collaboration. But uh, for a research collaboration, at least one I've ever been in that actually gets somewhere, there's also some element of the picture on the le- on the your right, the uh, picture on the right of people pulling together because there's that's work, and there's some sweat, and it has to be a team coming together. You use the word team, and to pull together about something, even though they might have somewhat disparate interests or agendas. So, so yeah, there's there's certainly both aspects. Now, a question that often comes up that is not directly the topic today, but that I feel I must touch on. And somebody, did any of you come when I talked about research last year? If so, this is a familiar slide. Anyway, um, I apologize that I'm repeating this. But, but um, a question that often comes up is, do missions and research go together? And some people would say that, no, it's like oil and water. You know, the last thing you want to do is try to mix missions 
and research. In other words, people would say, no, it's peanut butter and jelly. They're like, those great together. And why these different views? Well, the people who I would say it's like oil and water would say that uh, it's a question of focus. Are you focusing on faith and spiritual issues or are you focusing on science and biomedical research issues? And, you know, there's all sorts of horror stories, ethical horror stories from the past about research, right? If you've taken any research training in ethics of research, you know about these horrible things that were done in the past where you know, the, the needs and, and, and uh, uh, care for the patient didn't come first. And so research is like experimenting on people. And you don't want to give people that idea, especially if you're a, a missionary and you're trying to reach them for the gospel. And um, what will not only the, my patients, but the staff of the place where I work and my students, what will they think if I'm experimenting on people? And it's mission creep. And so the last thing you would want is to do research as a missionary in healthcare. But the people on the other side, the sort of peanut butter and jelly people, of which I am one, um, would say, actually, the great thing, they go together beautifully because biomedical research leads to improved patient care. And that uh, is a huge thing in the medical setting and in the mis- medical mission setting. If it's not just business as usual, if we are figuring out how to do better with this problem that we keep seeing and we keep trying to take care of and it doesn't turn out well, if we can figure out how to do better with that, wow, that's huge. And that has huge positive impacts not only on the patient but on my staff and students I work with and on the community I'm working in. And it's actually bringing the kingdom of God to those people. So two very different perceptions. Part of what's tied into this, and this is a whole separate topic, but I want to touch on it, is medicine really a missional activity? You know, if missions begins and ends with the preaching and telling of the gospel, if missions is words, then medicine is, doesn't have a, much of a role, actually. It's, at best, it's sort of a hook, right? It's the, it's the felt need that you hook somebody with so then you can do the real missions work, which is to preach or show the movie or tell them the gospel. Um, David Thompson, who's at this meeting, once famously said, Jesus was more than a mouth. Uh, and what he meant was Jesus had a body and hands and he laid hands on people and he healed them. And... Uh, In doing so, Jesus gave people a very powerful bodily experience of grace impacting their their life in an undeniable way. And I think that medical missionaries do the same. And I think that providing health care is an integral manifestation of missions. It's not just the hook. It's not the marketing strategy for missions. It is missions. Uh, And I, I guess I probably don't have to convince a lot of you about this, but... But uh, um, uh, I wanted to review that. So in a missions context, I'm a gastroenterologist, so my pictures have to do with GI. So this is an endoscopy research room. Uh, What should research look like in a faith-based context? Some of you are doing it or have done it. What would you say? Do you have certain ideas, principles about what it ought to look like?
ethical. Targeted towards important problems that human beings face. Targeted towards important problems. Absolutely. Then that's going to be a theme come through again and again in this session. Other comments? Ah, long-term focus, absolutely excellent. Focus on improved health. Focusing on improved health. Maybe we're less interested in working out the biochemical mechanism of an obscure enzyme, unless that has to do with a health problem we have right here in my location, right? And we need to fix that problem. Yeah, yeah. Has to be sustainable, long-term, sustainable. You guys could give my talk. We could stop now. Okay, yeah, I would add those. I, I would agree with all those. I would add that um, it has to demonstrate love and grace and mercy and kingdom values in the very way it's done. You know, it can't be a question of the ends justifying the means. It has to be sort of a kingdom activity. And that's not so easy in some settings because in, in, in uh, medicine, things are often hierarchical, right? There's the doctor. And then there's the nurse, and then there's the nursing assistant, and then there's, the, I guess, the patient at the bottom. But, but uh, uh, research, many of you know, it's not like that. It's collaborative. It's team-based, right? And I have a skill you don't have, but you, you have a skill I don't have, and we better work together as teammates or we're not going to get anywhere. So it's not a question of the person at the top. That can be a challenge, but it's also a beautiful thing in a mission setting to create that kind of team. And many things you've already said. You know, there has to be a commitment to the community. It has to bring the kingdom to, to a place that's happening. So I'm going to tell you a few stories about research and uh, just case examples. And then we'll circle back and talk about concepts and what you are going to do. This is a guy named Tom Thatcher, the, the man on the right of the picture with his wife Rosie and their three kids. And this was, uh, Tom was uh, called to be a medical missionary as a medical student at the University of Utah. And uh, he was really interested actually in neurosurgery, but he was told that if you want to be a missionary, you, you need to be a family practitioner. So he did a family practice residency. And he, and, and Rosie and their kids moved to Nigeria in 1988, and he started off working in community health evangelism at what was called a cottage hospital in a small rural place. Tom was sort of a data kind of guy. And even in that little hospital, he started collecting data on malnutrition and charts and, and creating spreadsheets and so forth. But after a couple of years, he and his wife moved to Joss, uh, Nigeria, where Greg here knows a lot more about Joss than I do because uh, he's lived there and returns there. But he moved to Joss, and he got involved at this place, Joss University Teaching Hospital. And he was asked very early on in his experience there to start a family medicine residency program. There was a perception that this was needed. And here was a guy from the U.S. who was a family practitioner. And he said, okay, he would do that. And he quickly discovered it was the British system and his residents all had to do a dissertation. They had to write a thesis. And that meant they had to do a research project. So Tom said, we better find some research projects for you guys and gals. And then the, the faculty of, the, of Juth came to him and said, oh, and would you teach a class on research methods and statistics? He said, well, I guess I could figure that out. So he was getting pulled into this sort of direction. And he would go to clinic, and he would see a lot of kids who looked like this. Anyone know what this disease is? 
It's rickets. Yes. Thank you, Joel. So this is rickets. And uh, this created a huge question in Tom's mind because he went back and he double checked. He read the books and the literature and the literature all said that rickets was a disease of vitamin D deficiency. And vitamin D, of course, is metabolized in your skin and you have to get sun exposure to have vitamin D, dihydroxy vitamin D anyway. And, um, you know, that's why those of us who live in Minnesota have an issue with vitamin D deficiency. But he was in Nigeria. Lots of sunlight. And these kids are running around with very little clothes on outside all day. So he said, vitamin D deficiency? And he would give them vitamin D and not much seemed to happen. And so he had a question, and it's just as some of you have said, and he kept seeing this over and over again in clinic and prescribing these kids vitamin D, and there just good things weren't happening. And, and so he had a question, what's going on with these kids? And this is where collaboration began, because he didn't have the answers. He had the question, and the question is all important. So... He had a friend, a Nigerian colleague who was an endocrinologist at the hospital. And he started talking to him. And the guy said, yeah, I wonder the same thing. And I've got a bunch of blood specimens from these kids in the freezer. I think we should try and figure it out. So then a, a friend of Tom's who he'd known in Utah, a pediatrician, came to visit. And he told his friend about this problem. And his friend said, you know, I think I probably could get some help doing vitamin D levels on those blood specimens you've got in a freezer. So the three of them kind of figured it out. And the guy from Utah, his name was Phil Fisher, brought the specimens back to Utah. And he found someone in the lab at Utah that would run the vitamin D levels. And guess what? None of these kids had any vitamin D deficiency. Whoa, that's interesting. So... um, They went on, on the basis of that pilot data, to get a small grant. They designed a prospective study, and they published their study in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a comparison of calcium, vitamin D, or both for nutritional rickets in Nigerian children. They showed that this was a problem in Nigeria of calcium deficiency. It wasn't a problem of vitamin D deficiency. And they changed and are continuing to change the treatment of rickets in the developing world across the globe, uh, this work. Um, So Tom achieved his goals with this. He figured out what was going on with these kids in his clinic. And along the way, they found some new knowledge and they led to better health. Now, if you talk to Tom about this, he would tell you that this was was a great thing in his life professionally and as a missionary. He would tell you that this work that he got involved in created all sorts of new relationships for him. In the medical center he was working in, in the country of Nigeria, with other people who are interested in this issue, with the Ministry of Health, with, with governmental people, international collaborations with other people in other countries who were thinking about rickets. Um, and he, many of those relationships have been opportunity for ministry for him. So to him, it's been a hugely positive thing. So example number two, uh, this is uh, a guy named Russ White. Russ was born in Africa to missionary parents, born in East Africa. He felt a call to missionary medicine early in his life. And he, as a medical student, he visited Tenwick Hospital, which is a hospital in southwestern Kenya. And uh, while he was there, he saw there were a lot of patients with esophagus cancer. And on the basis of his experience there as a medical student, he decided to become a thoracic surgeon. 
so he could come back and operate on people with esophagus cancer. He did a surgical residency in the U.S. He took the time to get a master's in public health. He uh, got some training in medical education because he was interested in teaching and starting a residency program. And then he went back to Tenwick Hospital and he got some GI endoscopy going and he found he could only operate on about 10% of his patients with esophagus cancer because the rest were too malnourished or uh, their disease was too advanced. And uh, I got to know Russ at a conference and he invited me to come see him. And I got there and there was this thing. I've already showed you this picture. He was clearly a research-oriented, data-oriented kind of person. He had a little sign, endoscopy research room. And this was a typical patient, is, remains a typical patient at his hospital. The woman in the wheelchair is the youngest person in this picture. Uh, she is in her early 30s. And her family members and David uh, teach the the, the one of the endoscopy workers there, uh, they're all older than she is, but she is dying of starvation because her esophagus is obstructed. So there were two big issues in Russ's mind. And the first time I visited him in the, in the sort of late 1990s, issue number one on his mind, the big clinical question he had was how to palliate patients because there's nothing that could be done. They were dying a very unpleasant and slow death. The hospital staff hated seeing these patients. Uh, uh, the patients were miserable. So at that time, there was a new technology called an expandable stent that could be put in the esophagus that would open things up and way too expensive for Africa. You know, uh, the stents at that time even cost about $1,500 each. Um, But Russ had identified the question and the issue, and he talked to me about it, and I said, well, we could do A, B, or C to try and deal with the palliation issue through a series of sort of God events uh, we ended up getting stents to Tenwick Hospital, and we figured out how to put them in without x-ray, and we did a number of steps to sort of figure out how to palliate people there. And uh, Russ, being a data person, collected all the data as he went along. And um, um, this led, has led over the years to multiple paleo- uh, publications about palliation of cancer, esophageal cancer. Russ has published the world's largest series of esophageal stent placement for cancer, Um, He's done uh, randomized trials to help define the right kind of stent. He's taught the stent producing industry things about their own devices and how they should be made and uh, uh, really advanced the particular field of palliation of esophageal cancer. Uh, What's happening now is that uh, we are developing a collaboration with Chinese manufacturers of stents to create a fabrication place in East Africa and create a business there that will fabricate stents at low cost and provide them for uh, countries up and down East Africa affected by this. The bigger issue, though, that Russ had from the beginning was not only how do I palliate my patients, but why is there so much esophagus cancer here? And could we possibly fix this problem? Could we prevent esophagus cancer in Kenya? And that uh, was an equally important question, although perhaps less immediate question to him. And um, so this took additional collaboration. And a guy named Sandy Dossie, who's at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, became a collaborator with us as part of our team on trying to figure this out. And, and Sandy happened to be doing similar research in areas in China and Brazil and Iran where this same disease 
was prevalent, uh, same form of esophagus cancer. And um, Russ's and Tenwick Hospital's involvement at that point has become increasingly, and in this line of research, providing samples, providing biopsies of tumors and urine and blood to study. And it's also, though, for the hospital become creating a research culture. Research, I've already said, it's so different than clinical care. In many ways, it's not hierarchical, it's team-based. You know, in clinical care, the patient is coming to you, and in some ways, you're doing them a favor. You're taking care of They have a need, and you're trying to meet their need. Research, it's the other way around. You have a need, you have a question, and the patient's doing you a favor by participating. So that really changes your relationship with that person. You know, you are, you, you know, and where I live, my patients have the on-call uh, information to call in and talk to whoever's on call. My research subjects have my cell phone number. Okay? So, so um, that's really cool when you think about that from a missions point of view, you know, uh, that engagement with someone. Um, but Tenwick Hospital, it's not easy for a place with limited resources, limited staff, to think, how do we create that? How do we create the space and time in our place to have people who will work on this, space on the, uh, on the uh, operating room and endoscopy schedule for th- research things to happen? Can we really do that? Can we, do, can we have an IRB? How do we think about the ethics of this? How do we make sure we have missions throughout this, you know. So there's an esophageal cancer research uh, uh, chaplain at Tenwick Hospital. There's a chaplain assigned to this program. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff the hospital had to figure out. Um, Sandy helps with lab studies and assays for obscure chemicals on urine and so forth. And Sandy and I help with funding. I mean, we find the money to make this happen. We write the grant proposals. We, you know, help with connections in that way. Um, and uh, so, you know, we're working on this issue of prevention. And there's, I don't, I'm not going to tell you all the science of it. But last, you know, uh, we are now at the point where we've done at least a pilot study showing we can prevent esophagus cancer in people in Kenya. And the challenge we face now over the next decade is to scale that. And we have an idea, and we think maybe 10 years from now we will have scaled it. So that's really exciting, really exciting for me. Now, this story um, began with, you know, a team of three, but this is a picture from about three years ago with just a part of the esophageal cancer research team at Tenwick Hospital, which includes not only multiple Kenyans, but uh, uh, a gastroenterologist, Steve Berger, who now lives, a uh, missionary gastroenterologist who lives there full time. It includes Sandy Doss, who's there, and another guy from the National Cancer Institute. And this guy in the back, Mike Machiro, was the first Kenyan esophageal cancer research fellow that we hired. And now for the last four years, we've had an uh, esophageal cancer research fellow. And, and uh, Mike will probably have a career in this. This will probably become what he does in a mission hospital setting. Along the way, this is Bernard Maritime. This is a Kenyan guy who had never left Kenya. We had a need for someone to do on-site rapid cytopathology uh, at Tenwick. And so he came and lived for a year in my home in Rochester, Minnesota. And that's him snow-blowing my driveway in Minnesota. (laughs) 
So, um, and, uh, you know, there's a burgeoning research, uh, uh, I'm sorry, residency program and surgical residency there. Many of these residents have participated in this research in one way or another. Okay, the last story I'm going to tell you is the story of Dr. Nora. So this is uh, 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 Nora and Dee. She is a, uh, was a medical resident at uh, um, Bingo Baptist Hospital in Cameroon, West Africa. Nora is uh, now just a recent graduate of that internal medicine residency program. She graduated this past summer, and she's now sort of a junior attending in that residency program. And this is uh, a, pic- a recent picture of the residency uh, members. This is Dennis Palmer, who runs the residency and is at this meeting. This is in Bingo Hospital. It's in a beautiful setting in northwest Cameroon. And I've been going there and teaching in the medicine residency program for seven or eight years now. Now, there's a huge problem there with hepatitis B. And I'm sorry, this is a, I'm a gastroenterologist. So you're hearing GI stuff. Dr. Ali was up here talking. He'd give you a different set of issues. Uh, in Cameroon, and that'd be great too. But so huge problem with hepatitis B. The map, the red areas are the like there where there's an over 7% prevalence of chronic hepatitis B in the population. That's just huge. And Cameroon is there. And for the, all the years I've been going there, I've, we've seen the ha- chronic hepatitis B is a big problem there. Young people dying of liver cancer related to hepatitis B or dying of cirrhosis uh, related to this. And Nora, uh, as a resident, we became interested in this problem that, you know, every week we admit patients to the medical ward there who are in their 20s and they're only candidates for palliative care for their advanced liver cancer related to hepatitis B. Well, what can we do about that? Or is that just the fact of life where that's the way it's going to be in Cameroon and at our hospital? So um, she said, let's do something about hepatitis B. The problem is you go look at what to do about chronic hepatitis B. It's not so easy. You need to have a fancy lab that runs quantitative DNA levels on blood and stuff that the genotype the virus stuff. There was no way. We were lucky to get a few serologies where we were. And um, then the drugs, you're supposed to use drugs that are extremely expensive. And there was no way we could get. And so it took... You know, she started when she was a first year resident, we started talking about this and by, you know, what could we do? And finally, we worked out sort of an algorithm to treat. This is not research yet. This is just thinking through it. We said, well, here's an algorithm with the resources we have, what we could do to try and take care of some of these people and maybe impact their disease. And it involved, you know, some guesswork or the best judgment when you don't have the fancy tests. And we had to use a, a generic an uh, older drug, lamivudine, that's sort of discouraged now for treatment because resistance develops. But we said, well, that's what we got. So we're going to have to try. And we bounced it off of hepatitis B experts sort of internationally. And they said, yeah, I guess if this is, you know, give it a go. And so we did. And Nora had some clinical successes. She had a couple of people, a couple of patients she sort of brought back from the brink, not with the ones with cancer, but the ones with decompensated liver disease, she brought them back, and their ascites went away, and they stopped bleeding, and they actually survived. Pretty exciting, you know. And so um, we talked about this, and we said, well, maybe we should try and do a prospective study and learn something. Because as we read the literature on this, there's nothing about natural history of hepatitis B in West Africa or any of sub-Saharan Africa. All the data comes from Asia. 
And people assume it must apply to Africans. Well, maybe, maybe not. Could we actually learn something about this problem? And um, so we said, well, we probably could. If we could just enroll some people and save some samples, maybe we could learn something. And so uh, we had to start collaborating right away. And the first people we collaborated was the Cameroon Baptist Convention Health Board, which runs the hospital. And we went and talked to the president of the hospital. And he said, you know, uh, actually the president of the health system, which is multiple hospitals and clinics. And he said, well, you know, I've been thinking about this problem because I know people who are struggling with it. And and he said, I know in your hospital back in the U.S., you screen people for hepatitis B before you even let them work in the hospital. Yeah. So he, they launched a thing to screen all health board employees and their spouses for hepatitis B, which is about 7,000 people. And Nora and I said, okay, those who are positive, we'll offer them opportunity to enroll in a prospective population-based study of asymptomatic people who are infected. Let's learn about this problem. But we said, you're going to have to agree to let us take care of them with some health board resources. And that collaboration happened. That was really big for us. And then we collaborated with the uh, medical university and the capital and the Ministry of Health around some of this. At, at the same time, the hospital started to upgrade its lab equipment. Here's our, the, the lab, and now we have much better serologies. We can actually rely on the serology results. And, and so we began to think, hey, we maybe could actually do this. And so uh, Nora wrote a protocol. It was approved by the hospital IRB, and she started enrolling people about six months ago who work in this hospital system in a prospective observational study. My job as the collaborator was to help her with her protocol to get, figure out how to get a minus 80 degrees freezer onto her campus to save some specimens and to just sort of help her network. And it's really been kind of fun because this work is early on, but Nora has kind of become a hepatitis B expert along the way, and she really enjoys that. And she's also figuring out how to be a clinical researcher. She's uh, hired a study coordinator, so there's somebody to help her with all the grunt work that she does not have time as a staff doctor to do. And, you know, she's already starting to think, how does this become part of my career? You know, do I actually want to make this part of what I do? Um, Even though we've only been enrolling for six months, these are our partners so far. University of Yaoundé, where the medical school is, there's a guy there on the faculty who's become a co-investigator. University of Bemenda, the city nearby. There's a woman there in a lab, an American, secular person, who's helping develop lab resources in Africa. She's going to run certain hepatitis B virus DNA levels for us at a cut rate. Uh, Cameroon Baptist Convention Health Service. The Ministry of Health has become interested in introducing the better drugs for hepatitis B in the last year. And they are saying to Nora, why don't you be our treatment center up there and we'll give you the drugs? Wow, right? And my place, uh, two weeks ago, a lab at CDC Atlanta said to us, you ship us some of those specimens of the freezer, we'll run all the fancy tests on them for you for free. So collaboration. Okay, so um, research Why do biomedical research? Well, there are benefits. There's benefits for the host in the developing country. Relationships, many of them will say to you, I enjoy it. Solving locally relevant problems, job satisfaction, and even prior session within here was about burnout, avoiding burnout. Benefits for the collaborators. As as those of you who are students know, 
uh, global health is trending, right? Everyone wants to do an overseas elective, and it's trending in funding agencies and medical schools, and uh, there's a lot of interest here. Um, and uh, there are benefits for the host institution in the developing world, number one of which is better patient care. That's the goal, as we were saying, of this stuff. Um, being known for excellence, standing in the community and country. So um, we have about 25 minutes left, if that clock is correct. Uh, maybe it's even more. It's more like uh, almost 30 minutes. So I wanted at this point to um, get you to start doing the presentation. And actually, I need to get rid of that. Oh, no, it'll, it'll go away. All right, so I was going to ask you, from your experience and just from you, what you think about this, what does the host bring to the collaboration, a research collaboration, the host in the developing world setting? Well, first, do you even need a host, or could you go in as a foreigner and just do it? No. From my experience, no. <laughs> no, and I would say that, too. I would say that, too. There may be some exceptions, but in general, you need somebody there who is, you know, the host of this thing. And what does the host bring to a research collaboration? Just knowledge of the community that local Yes. Good. Anyone else? Sorry? Knowledge of the infrastructure, access to it, knows how to work it, what's, what's possible, back to your idea. Somebody else? Possible privileges to practice research. Mm-hmm. So even beyond privileges, um, maybe what you're saying is... Um, Yes, yeah, so standing is maybe the word I'll use. They are the ones with the credentials, not only the professional credentials, but the street cred, if you will, right? I mean, Russ White, you can travel around Kenya with Russ White, and no matter where you go, people know him. It's incredible in this huge country that this guy who's a missionary surgeon in a little town in West Africa, in southwest Kenya, anywhere you go, somebody says, hi, Dr. White. It's amazing. You know, I couldn't go there and do anything. Nobody knows who I am, right? So, yeah, standing professionally and in the community and, yeah. What else does the host bring to this? Yeah, they help facility where patients are cared for. Yes. Access to patients. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty key. Excellent. Uh, human resources for the collaboration. Yes, although... Now, that's going to be a challenge for them as well, because most healthcare organizations in the developing world, as this gentleman could probably speak to, they're running lean. There's not a lot of extra resources lying around. But sooner or later, there have to be some way of getting resources involved. Yeah. Are there connections with the Ministry of Health and others? Yes. Gov uh, governmental relationships. Someone said ethics board. Yeah, and there's a need for absolutely for any prospective research involving people. There has to be some ethical approval. 
And that's a, I, one of the stories I didn't tell today is of Debbie Coates, who's a nurse practitioner in rural Cambodia, who wanted to figure out why she saw so much beriberi, which is vitamin B1 deficiency. And uh, a lot of the collaborative research I've been involved with with Debbie has to do with getting to know the, camp, the National Ethics Board in Phnom Penh. And that's been a fascinating story all on its own. Anything else? I'm going to add champion. The host has to be the champion for the thing. There's a lot of stuff the host does not have to do. The host does not have to know how to run the lab assays. The host does not have to know how to create the REDCap database to enter the study data in. The host does not need to know the biochemistry. Right? You know the biochemistry. So for those of you who are in that field, I would say there's... This is not as daunting as it might seem because if you can say, here's the compelling question that we need to answer and, you know, here's how we can network here to get permission to do it and get people enthused about doing it, that's your key role, you know. Your key role is not figuring out how to run the DNA assay, right? Okay, what is... The visitor, the outsider, maybe I should have said. What role does the outsider play? Sorry? Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, well, that's interesting. Maybe. Formulating the appropriate question, but I think that will often be driven by the host. So this is really interesting. What do other people think about this? Does the question belong to the host or to the visitor? Yeah. I, mean, I think sometimes it's helping them ask the best question possible. They have the idea of what needs to be targeted, but sometimes how to structure that in terms of a, an issue that's actually studyable. Could, yeah. Absolutely. So there's going to be some back and forth about that, right? Do any of you have experience with that? You're in Zambia. How's it gone defining the question? So that's a, a nice story, and you might go so far as to say from that story in your comment that unless the host and the visitor own the question, you have a problem, right? If the visitor comes and says, I know what question you should be asking, you know, right, yeah, yeah. But you're right, the, the visitor is going to help massage that, and yeah. Okay, what else does the visitor contribute in terms of collaboration? What do you mean handling the data? So, I mean, obviously, it's one thing to collect raw data, but it's another to store it and process it statistically and these types of things. So the data collection might be done by somebody else, but data handling and analysis, statistics. So for a clinical study, an epidemiologic study, yeah. And you shouldn't have to do that, right? That's what a collaborator should be able to help with. Okay, good, good. What else does the visitor do? Absolutely. 
So all those issues that kind of make, might make you groan when you think to write, come let me study, well, statistical power and uh, uh, which design do I choose? How do I really know the study's going to answer my question? Yeah, yeah, you can get help with all that stuff, right? Okay, what else? Absolutely. Mentorship in what you're doing. Absolutely. So two things you've got there. Networking. The visitor has a network that they can bring to bear that the host does not have typically. Right. So, you know, Phil Fisher visits Tom Thatcher in Nigeria and says, oh, I know somebody who could run those assays for you, for us. Yeah, yeah. And so networking. And then the other one I heard was funding. Is that right? Um, Yeah. So uh, this is where it starts to feel like you're pulling a rope, not just exchanging ideas, uh, is when it gets to stuff like funding. And that's definitely an issue. And, you know, I can tell you some of the things I've done, I've paid for myself, like the esophageal cancer research chaplain at Tenwick Hospital. I've funded that position for years. I mean, there's no grant medical grant organization in the U.S. that's going to pay for a a chaplain. Um, But to do a lot of the other work we've done there, it's been done with research grants. You know, from and the NCI paying per sample. The NCI will pay Tenwick Hospital 50 to $100 per specimen. So that's not actually a research grant, but it's a great way to fund the research. And other, we're using that model now to help get some of the next step stuff done. So, so yeah, so part of being a visitor, a collaborator from outside is network. Um, for the technical expertise you need with an epidemiologist and a biostatistician and the lab tech expertise and the pathologist and whatever else, and funding, figuring out the funding. So that's hard work, those things, but it's what, you're, it's what you got to do. One thing I would add, which is this is all very practical, but there is that issue, too, of um, you, you, the visitor will often bring a, if there's an initial aspect, Christian worldview to bear in the sense that you give people a sense of, well, you know, why is so much research driven from the West? Why did the scientific revolution happen in the West? Huh. And explain, you know, I'm in a nearly 100% Muslim context, and so to me, th- this is part of the mission. You say, isn't it interesting that it started there and it's really developed there, and you're trying to bring it here. Why did it develop there and not here? That's fascinating. This idea of going back and explaining, you know what? The, the Christian uh, pursuit of God through Jesus Christ is the foundation of a lot of this stuff. And that's, to me, that's the most effective part of my ministry on the ground is I do mainly medical education. Just, oh, yeah, why do we do it differently you know, over there than here? And just throwing out the question and saying, this is the lines along which it developed in the West, it's developed differently here. Why do those differences exist? And is there something real? Because there's a tendency to discount anything outside of Islam. And yet there's something they want that really has a very much a Christian root. And, and even, the, even the whole idea of making progress. Yeah. I don't know where you are. A psychologist who's done a study with 
with our organization about this idea of progress-resistant versus progress-prone cultures. And he's gone and sort of documented historically how his categorization of progress-prone cultures tend to arise from a Christian worldview. And progress-resistant cultures tend to arise from nearly every other religious faith. So getting your, your students interested in the concept of progress is missional in a way. Fascinating. Other things the visitor brings, contributes? Yeah, I, I work with Amos Health and Hope in Nicaragua, and we do uh, rural health care, and we do community-based participatory research, which is uh, working with people in the community to do really simple things like uh, prevalence of anemia, prevalence of parasites in the kids. And one of the key concepts is to do research with the community. Yes. We don't do research to them or for them. We try to get them involved from the very beginning and make sure that it's an issue that they think is relevant to the community. Mm. And so that part, I think, is important even in high-tech research like you're talking yes. about. Somehow the local people be really invested in it and very interested in it, too. And it not be like an academic thing that we in the West want to know. But they understand, and these are excellent cases that you've given of like major issues that affect them and why it's important. But there's also uh, another issue, which is once we have the results, there's a responsibility upon us to disseminate them, interpret them back to the community, and say, okay, this is what we found. What do you guys think? And so yes. somehow yeah, I think there should be a step in there where once you have the results, you, you want to present them to the relevant people and use them to take action of some kind, you know, to build a, an action plan upon it. So it's not like just, and because um, we've seen this in Nicaragua, that some people do research and then just leave, and you don't let the people know what the results are, or the patients, you know, and so I think that that's an important step that us as visitors, I guess I'm a local now because I'm there, right, but I'm also a visitor, right, because we're doing mission there. There's, there's a big responsibility also as visitor to to take those results and present them and disseminate them too. Yeah, those are great comments, and and that's where the that uh, this is really mission in many ways research. So uh, from one of my own experiences, the, the work in Kenya, one of the things we've had to really focus is on is okay, we screen a thousand people around here for a precursor lesion in the esophagus. How do we be sure, now we know the incidence of that, and we report that at a scientific meeting. Well, how do we be sure we go back and find those people and get them in and take the next step and figure out what to do for them? You know, So we're always having conversations like that. If we do this, are we really going to be able to do the right thing for the people who are involved, which means trying to figure out how to help them with what they have, even though maybe we're not quite sure yet what we're going to be able to do. So, yeah, you are absolutely right. This is good. This is great. I love your presentation. Uh, one of the other things which I saw in, in what you're doing, which I really liked, is that you're training, you're mentoring. Someone mentioned the word mentoring. But yes. Training local people how to do research. Absolutely. To, to do this kind of work, which is a, a fundamental part of, I think, what we need to do in mission work or anything. If we're all working overseas, is to train local capacity, build up the people to be able to participate in Absolutely. That's great you guys are doing that. Yeah, yeah.
Thank you. Well, it sounds like you, like some of the others here, could give a whole hour talk yourself, which I would benefit from. To the to what the visitor does helps with, absolutely. So grant application writing, um, publications, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yes, definitely, an English writer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what about um, access to usage with journals and stuff? Yes, that, um, that, that is, is somewhat true. I mean, I sometimes get requests to, can you download, find and down, send us these 10 PDFs? Sure, I can. But there's more resources than you would think. There's a thing called Hinari, which is free access to medical literature for people in developing world settings. It's not every journal, but it's a lot of journals. Um, uh, so, but yes, you're right. That is part of it. So um, what challenges do you perceive in your own journey on this in terms of being able to engage and do this sort of thing? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's also true in research here, though, right? I mean, it's not going to do research unless you're a full-time researcher. I'm certainly not. You know, it's, often, it's often in there. But I think that's just a, a reality. And I, in thinking about that collaboration that goes on, then, I think there's a wonderful accountability that happens when you're doing these projects about just knowing you're going to have a phone call or knowing you're going to have a touching time creates mm. accountability on both sides to try to keep it moving. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would add to that from the visiting outsider's point of view is returning because there's so much you can do over the phone or Skype, but I have learned the hard way that if I don't show up and let's spend some time together, that things can fall apart. So, so uh, the visitor, one of the things we should have put on the visitor's list is a commitment to going back. It's not in this endeavor. It's not about visiting a different country every time you go somewhere. I mean, it just doesn't work. It's you're going back to the same place and the same people over and over again and becoming part of the fabric of what's happening there. That is a fantastic remark, and it's why there has to be national leaders and champions. So Mike Machiro, I pointed out, our first esophagus cancer research fellow, we designed a study to do endoscopy on about 500 asymptomatic adults in that region, looking for precursor lesions in the esophagus. And Mike knew much more than I did about how to make that happen. He said, okay, we're going to go out and meet with the village chiefs. What's a village chief? You know? But, you know, his approach was he went and met with all the village chiefs. He met, went to the, village, the district health officers from the governmental side. Unless everyone said yes, including the chief, they're done in that set place. But if the chief said yes, then you could hold a community meeting and invite anyone in the community to come and hear about this. And then you had a community meeting. And those people who were interested, you'd come back and meet with them and then enroll them in a study. Well, where I live, we don't talk to the, to the mayor before we do a study, and we don't you know, talk to the, to the district health officer either. So, so yeah, absolutely. And um, a lot of issues 
to answer for people. If you touch it, then am I dead? Et cetera, et cetera. So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Finding the right collaborators. And so that's interesting because sometimes it's Christians. And that's often how this begins, right? Because of networks and relationships we have. But oftentimes it's not Christians also. I mean, uh, I have research collaborators on some of these projects. They're marvelous people and great scientific collaborators. but And they're not Christian. And uh, for the team, that's okay for what we are doing. You know, we, we don't have an issue with that. But thank you. Ten minutes left. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, one of the issues that I find is who gets the credit for the results? Uh, copyright issues that come publications. Um, who owns them? Yes. And not only copyright, but IP issues, in intellectual property. So this is a very important thing, and I'm glad you mentioned it. So... Um, because it's something that, that actually is best discussed early on in a research collaboration. And um, my view has always been that the people on the ground should get most of the credit. You know, it's not really, I'm doing very little in these things compared to the people who are there every day collecting the data, making it happen, you know. And, um, but it's really good to, be, to talk about that fairly early on. And say, okay, if we're going to do this project, um, it's what we do with collaborators in the U.S. for research projects that are just done here. Who's going to get, well, you know, who's going to be first author? Who's going to be last author? I mean, so that sort of thing is very important to many people. And so, yeah, absolutely. And then copyright and IP issues, there's been huge change in the last 10 years even in this. So it's not the case anymore that an American visiting Ghana helping with a research project could take the blood specimens or the skin biopsies or where they are and just throw them in a suitcase and bring them back to the U.S. I mean, maybe that happens, but that's not the way it ought to happen. So there's things called material transfer agreements or MTAs. And the MTA is a legal document which stipulates who, what the rights and responsibilities are. And, for instance, this hepatitis study we're doing, specimens will come to the U.S. from Cameroon. The MTA will say, here are the tests that are going to be done on that blood, those blood specimens. And if you want to do anything besides those, let's say one day later you want to study the DNA of those people, you know, which right now we're only studying the viral hepatitis DNA, not the human DNA. If it says, you know, if you want to do that, uh, you need a new MTA. The samples may be sitting in a freezer in the U.S., but before you do that, we commit that we will get new ethics approval in Cameroon, we will get a new tra uh, material transfer agreement from the Cameroonian partners to the U.S. partners about, okay, we all agree we can do something extra with those specimens. So that sort of thing is hugely important uh, just around handling uh, uh, biological specimens and even handling data. Data is, a, is something that is transferred. And um, uh, who owns it? And uh, uh, there's less often intellectual property in data. But then MTA covers things like if intellectual property emerges, who owns it? If we find a gene that um, is linked to esophagus cancer in Kenya, who owns the rights to develop a, a test from that? 
So that's all got to be spelled out ahead of time, you know. So you're absolutely right. It's, you know, if you've reached that point, you're already, like, doing fantastic in research. But, yeah, that, that, there's a time where that has to be. And there's a way to deal with those things that protects the rights of the people in, in the, the target location. Yes. I mean, because the, the, the bottom line is the reason why the collaboration is being done is as a result of mission. Yes. So if these issues come out, how do you deal with the mission part of it when everybody's trying to get credit, everybody's looking for publications and how you be uh, maybe famous or something out of that. So for me, that is a, a big issue. Yeah, fantastic. So. It's an opportunity to, to bring a kingdom approach to research. And the, the fact is, um, if the main goal is to make people famous from this kind of thing, it doesn't go very well. There's too many difficulties and barriers to this sort of work. And the idea of becoming famous is too antithetical to the whole mission concept. We want Jesus to be famous. He should be the senior author. Yeah. So, so I mean, you have to talk about that stuff. We are not here for anyone to become famous. We're here to impact this community and country for Christ. And we're going to, and, and you have to do it in a godly way from the beginning to end, including all these issues. So I don't have easy answers for you about that. But I agree, you have to talk about that stuff. At least if you get to a certain stage where there are people involved and papers are going to be written and specimens are going to be sent then, yeah, you have to have an overt conversation about that. So another, another question. Do you, do you find that there is much suspicion from the population? I mean, most of these are colonial countries that we're talking about where they've been exploited um, by the West for anything from resources to everything else. I mean, do you find that there is suspicion that perhaps the, the, the West is coming in and using their people as guinea pigs again to do experiments? Yes. Anyone else want to comment on that before I do? Is you in Zambia? Yeah, we've been, um, we collect specimens, um, a lot of specimens, including placentas, which is brought up a lot because there's a lot of kind of belief in witchcraft and what are you going to do with our placentas and, um, and all that. So we, um, thankfully my study coordinator is a believer, and that's actually been super helpful um, in discussing these issues and, and talking with patients about it. And I think that's why it's so important to have Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. I would add that the research is often built on the reputation of the institution, the local institution that is that is sponsoring it. So Tenwick Hospital has been there in southwestern Kenya for 60, 70 years. They have an extensive village health program. 
People in that region know the hospital has their best interest in, in heart. They know they've done better with their pregnancies and their children because of that hospital. There's huge trust in that hospital, in those communities. And part of our job as researchers is to preserve and ex- foster and, and even extend that trust, not to break that trust. So, um, you know, we talk about that a lot. If we're going to do this new study idea X, what impact will that have on the hospital in this region? And there's times when we've said we are not going to do that study because we're not sure what it will do to that relationship. You know, because that a lot of this hangs on that. And in Bingo Hospital, it's the same, you know, so where I know, you know, you're doing a thing. Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow, that's a huge question. Two great options. It would be great to talk about that. I think, are we done? Yeah, so we're done. So you can go, you can leave. If uh, You can leave if you like. I I would just say there's some people in this room who I think are great resources around these issues. And if you want to talk to each other or me, you're welcome. Otherwise, I think it's time for lunch, isn't it? Is it lunch now? Or is it? It's the plenary set. Well, don't miss that. Thank you for coming. You are a great audience. And I would love to hear about what you're doing. I didn't put my email up here, but I will now. Well, I guess I shouldn't because it doesn't even have my name. But my email, um, I'll give you my card, but it's topazian.mark at mayo.edu. Come on. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for coming. I have a quick question. Yes. In your research on the esophageal cancer Well, we're only partway along with that. Okay. We, uh, we actually do know some, a couple of the very important environmental risk factors now. We think there are genetic risk factors we haven't fully plumbed. But we're still, we don't need to know all that stuff to prevent cancer. You need to know what the precursor lesion is and how to find it and get rid of it. So like we do colonoscopy to take out colon polyps, we don't know all the biology of how colon cancer happens, but we still know how to prevent it. And so we're doing, we're taking that path to prevention in Kenya, uh, while at the same time trying to understand, especially the environmental things, we might get the society to modify. And there's a couple of big things now that we think we need to modify, and we and we need to figure out how to study how changing those changes risk in the culture. So. Yes. Well, it's a long talk, but there's, we know scaldingly hot beverages and smoke ingestion are two important environmental risk factors. So, 